hi, hello, welcome to episode 67 of Trail Society, produced by Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. And I'm Keely Henninger. And Keely will be joining us, or Keely, man, I don't know, 8 a.m., we're doing great. <laughs> we're not, we're not, we're not editing. We're just going to keep rolling. Uh, Hillary will be joining us here in a little bit. She's on another call. Um, Keely, I get to see you in like a couple days. We're recording this ahead of Black Canyon, but I get to like hug you in the desert. But how does that uh, long range forecast look on your end? I mean, I'm okay with the weather. I was going to start doing sauna training, but no need to do that. <laughs> no, I'm bringing like rain pants and a down, like two down jackets. And... Exactly. Like, I mean, I think my race looks like it's getting a little warmer on Sunday, but it's still like the highest 60 in Phoenix. So like the high in Black Canyon City will be probably 55, 54. Oh, yeah. So not too worried about it. Um, the rain will be fun. If the trails are sloppy, then bring it on because that's all I run in. So <laughs> yeah. Have we talked about you running the 60K? I feel like we've talked about you pacing Rachel Drake, who we had on last episode. Yeah, I guess but not. Yeah, you're, yeah, I'm racing you're the 60K. Jumping I, in. So long story short, I wasn't going to race the 60K, but I got into U of A medical school and they actually have a, a student's day on Monday. Oh, Tuesday, And so I was like, looking at the calendar and I was like, oh, Jay, we should go back for the race and then just go down to Tucson. And that's a way to like make it back to Arizona. Tucson um, was number three so, on our residency list. It's high on my list just because I love Tucson. Like, yeah. so anyways, but it'll be cool to go down there with him. Um, but yeah, then I was like, well, I guess I could just race the 60K if I'm going to be there kind of as a nice little rust buster, just because all I'd been doing all winter was a lot of slogging. So I've been kind of getting some turnover back, which is fun. And I love this race. Like it's so fun. And it looks like there's some fun people racing, at least from what JT's told me. Um, I love that JT so, knows who's racing. That's so cute. He just follows everyone on Instagram. He's like, Hey, do you know, so-and-so is going to Arizona? And I'm like, no, cool. No, cool. <laughs> I think there's a bunch of people who are crewing or helping with the live broadcast or helping on Saturday. Uh And then are running the 60K. So like Leah is going to be in the field all day, freezing her butt off on Saturday, doing commentary. Sounds like we're all kind of treating it the same. It's like I'm racing, pacing Rachel for 10 or 11 miles and then racing the 60K. So it's like my goal is to run Chuck and And so this is more like a fun race. And I think, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like I do a lot of races where all my pressure is on myself to win. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I must do my, my best. And I think this year, some of my goals is just to race a little bit more. Mm-hmm. of shorter stuff to be okay not like having to run from the front or run run my hardest race every single race because I think when you only race three times a year it's really easy to get tied up in the pressure of being like well this race is only my second race of the year it must be the best race ever and sometimes in trail running that doesn't work so like I think just racing a little bit more but having less pressure and just like running to get more racing miles and being comfortable being out there kind of the goal for at least the beginning of the season. I think that's super smart. And I'm a person I'm, well, you know, this about me. I'm a huge proponent of going and getting my like ass just absolutely handed to me at races, which is not for everyone. Not mm-hmm. everyone loves that as particularly on like the elite side of things, but I love like sticking my nose in places where maybe it shouldn't be like <laughs> going to Lake Sonoma 50 mile as a, as a tune-up race, right? Mm-hmm. Like, or Black Canyon hundred K as a tune-up race where it's not my big race for the mm-hmm. the season that was like leading into western states or something and it just was like yeah like my plan is that i'm not peaked here i'm not like my expectations are like i'm gonna put up a good fight uh-huh. but it's like i might be third i might be 12th and like yep. it doesn't really matter and so i think it's yeah i think it's cool growth 
for athletes to like Mm -hmm. mix it up like that. Yeah. And it's not common in our sport, even though in my mind it should be like, if you look at track runners, most of them will do a lot of track races in the season to tune up for like the Olympic trials or the Olympics. And they go into those races knowing they're not going to run their PR, not even close. Right. And we go into these races, most of our races, at least my mindset. And I know a lot of other people's mindset is going into these big races like, oh, I got to win this one. Then I got to win the next one. And it's like even crazier in our sport because it's like we're racing 50K. So like, no, it can't be that every single race we're just on. Yeah. And so I had that in, like that epiphany the other day while I was talking to my friend. And I'm like, oh, I mean, yeah, there should be more races that just don't matter as much. And then some that can matter more. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's kind of my thought. Yeah, I think there's different ways to do that. It could be local races, but personally for me, the local races are almost more stressful because it's like, oh, I'm the pro locally. (laughs) Like I should beat everyone. And it's like, no, no, no. Like we have a lot of (laughs) local heavy hitters who are very much unsponsored and very much could be world dominant type of thing. So it's, uh, yeah, to each their own. You guys, we have such great news. We have an, an official title sponsor. This podcast is presented by The Feed, which is, I think... As a cool development for us. Like we've been working with the feed for a long time. But yeah, now we get to say officially the feed is our title sponsor and we are so gosh darn excited. And uh, to celebrate, I just ordered double cookies and cream waffles because there were some left. And I would encourage everyone to go do the same. Hi, good morning, Hilly. We're just talking about how the feed is our new title sponsor officially. And I'm muted. I'm so happy. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> Um, so to kind of, in, in that vein, I mean, I'm really excited. I'm a nutrition agnostic human being. So it's like, I've got precision hydration fuel. I've got some like weird spring matcha stuff coming in. I've got chews from who knows where. And obviously my, my first love in life waffles don't tell Steven and Petey. I said that, but waffles are pretty high on the loves of my life list mm-hmm. right now. And you too can experience the loves of my life. By going to www.thefeed.com slash trail society. And there you will get a $15 credit quarterly to use, we think. And that might that might change over the course of the year. But right now, $15 credit per quarter to use on orders from the feed. So we just wanted to give an extra big lovey shout out to our friends over there. Yeah. And one of my athletes is very anti-gel. So they've only tried a couple, but they like basically had a bad experience with them. So what they've started doing is the feed has like these ultimate tryout packs and like different little gel hodgepodges where they put together like all the best selling gels into one pack and then send you that and you get to try like literally one of everything. Um, And they've actually had a ton of success with that because they've never known about some of these other brands and like a lot of these gels are different. And so if you're one of those people where you're like, hey, Goo's not for me or Martin's not for me or whatever, there's a lot of ways to just try out a bunch of different stuff. And a lot of my athletes have been trying that out recently because some of them just don't love certain gels. And they're like, oh, I didn't even know this this brand had a gel. And now I can try this one and see if I like that, too. So it's been pretty cool. Yeah, they have so many different different things. But something maybe Corinne, you'll add to your love list is fresh. It's uh like homemade cookies. I think I've told I talked about oh, this you did. here before. It's so good. I actually just ordered a few. They have like I'm not a double chocolate kind of person, but they have one of those like a brownie, and then they have like a fresh baked cookie. They're in these mm-hmm. like vacuum sealed things. So I like put it in my my bibs for riding and it warms it up. <laughs> or like running it's actually it's it's really good too so it's like that's a nice alternative if you don't want to have 
gels because I don't always love those for for runs too. So. Yeah. So we'll be working with them all year long. We've got some fun stuff cooking up in the works. Actually, our really good friend, Corinne Chalvoy is working for the feed now. So Corinne and Corinne have joined forces <laughs> um, and we're joining forces on a bunch of stuff this year, including a bunch of live commentary. So the Corinne's are going to dominate. But again, if you want to try anything from the feed, go over to www.thefeed.com slash trail society. Doing so shows a lot of support for us as well. Um, keeping this whole thing off the ground. Um, I think we're going to switch into some news and the news is kind of short and I don't want to say sweet, but it is um, just to kind of give folks an update on my end. Um, there's been a bunch of meetings this week. It's only Tuesday, so I don't know how that works, but there's been a bunch of meetings this week um, with UTMB, the PTRA, Killian and Zach, et cetera. Um, actually, a bunch of brands, a bunch of brand managers also met with a number of invested parties at UTMB as well. Um, I just got a text from my brand manager or like the head of global marketing for Adidas Terex this morning about that meeting. Um, and so these are things that have been slowly in the works, but then were expedited by the leaked email from Killian and Zach um, that was leaked on Instagram by a British um, running coach. But it it was an interesting meeting. I would not say there's anything settled yet, but I do think all invested parties really want, really do want I can't say everything because we haven't talked to Iron Man yet. And they are on our list of people to talk to because Iron Man does own 45% of the company. I think the Pilates own 55% slash UTMB owns 55% and Iron Man group owns 45%. So we need to talk to the new CEO at Iron Man as well. But um, a lot of people do want things to go in a positive direction. But the meeting yesterday was two hours long. Um, it was occasionally brutal, occasionally discouraging, and periodically optimistic. Um, so I would say that there's probably nothing that's going to change in the immediate term, the short term. This was a very long, winding meeting with lots of questions thrown out, not by the PTRA board, but by any PTRA members um, could be on the call, which is, I think was really cool for the Pilates to hear from many people, not just the people that they interact with the most. Um, and I would say, too, I think that most of us really like the Pilates, um, have no like ill will against Catherine and Michelle, but that the way the organization is running, the way it's growing really quickly, the way it is moving into certain sectors by basically saying, Iron Man, you're a North American company, do whatever you want, is kind of what happened here. And the disconnect in the communication between Iron Man and UTMB was a bigger whoopsie than UTMB and the Pilates realized. And so they're currently kind of um, working on mending some of those fences, bridges. I'm not sure what you burn and what you mend. Um, but that is currently what's going on. So I want to say that, you know, it's very much not a settled deal. It's very much not over. And I don't know exactly what will happen. I do think Stephen and I talked about this and then I'll end my rant here shortly, but <laughs> Stephen and I were talking about this, about how, you know, if you want to be the best football player, I'm talking American football, but you don't like the NFL, you still are going to play in the Super Bowl, right? Like that's still the pinnacle of your sport. If you're a U.S. biathlete or an, a, a European biathlete and you have a problem with the IBU, the International Biathlon Union, you still have to compete in the IBU World Cup. And so in trail and ultra running, we're not quite in a position where UTMB is or has to be the pinnacle of the sport, but it could be. And it might, it, maybe it should be, but... Mm -hmm. We're in a position where they're, they are not the end-all, be-all entity. They're not our national governing body. They don't own the sport. 
Um, and so unlike the NFL, unlike the IBU, unlike international track and field, unlike, you know, X, Y, or Z organization, this is a moment in time where both the public, so you all listening at home, um, elite athletes, brands can say something, can have a conversation with UTMB, with Ironman, et cetera, to help steer the ship in a way that hopefully benefits their business, hopefully benefits the regular folk, hopefully benefits the elite athletes, hopefully benefits the environment, et cetera. Um, so we're not stuck. We're not stuck yet. Yeah. We could be I stuck and that's okay. Yeah. That like, that's, that's an okay like outcome, but mm -hmm. it could be better. Mm -hmm. And that's where, that's where I come from. It could be better. And I think it's okay to like love something and want it to succeed and also criticize it semi-intensely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's helpful and important that you mentioned like the brands have an, a responsibility to speak up because I do think that while we are not governed by UTMB, like a lot of brands make it a mandatory race mm -hmm. where you have to go if you want to get your salary. And so I think it's like hard to say it's not a pinnacle when like sometimes it's actually in the contract with yeah. a brand to be like, hey, we expect you to be at this race. Yeah. And brands aren't 100% happy with UTMB either. Like UTMB mm -hmm. has tried to put some other stuff into play for 2024 that the brands actually said, no, we're not going to do that because <laughs> it didn't benefit the brands. It didn't benefit mm -hmm. the athletes. It benefited the race org. And so I do think that it is kind of this weird, vicious cycle where brands are putting mm -hmm. that in our contracts and yet brands aren't happy with the situation either. Right. Yeah. And so it's yeah. a big old work in progress. Yeah. The other yeah, and like anything, it's like, we should always question it, right? Things can always be better. Yeah. What do you got, Hillary? No, there's just one thing too. It's like a, another really cool thing about the ultra running community is that it's not just driven by elites and like, you know, brands, it's driven by participation and, and, you know, your money can talk about which races that you want to go to. Right. So it's like, so I think there's also that really cool thing. I mean, I know that in particular UTMB this year had a, a ton of entries, like a lot of wait lists, like a lot of people, some people that I coach, like they're going to participate in the UTMB races as well. Right. But there's like, there is that other piece too. Right. So I think it's important for listeners to participate in in the conversation as well. It's not just up to, um, you know, the, the elite end of the sport to shape it. Like other people have, have a voice as well. Yeah. And I've been asked by, I've got athletes that will go to UTMB and athletes that won't. And I've been asked by my athletes and random athletes. Like I've gotten DMS on Instagram, my coaching email and LinkedIn of all places of <laughs> people being like, Hey, Corinne, what do you think? And I'm like, you know, like at the end of the day, you have to do you, you, the, here's, here's how I'm looking at it. Here's what the conversations I'm having with my athletes. And at the end of the day, like you have to make the decision that makes you feel good, makes you sleep at night, makes you happy, et cetera. And so for some of my athletes, that's been like, yeah, I've been working for this for four years. I'm going to go. Mm -hmm. And for some of my mm -hmm. athletes, it's been like, mm -hmm. you know what? Like, actually, I'm going to go do Ultra Monte Rosa. I've got two athletes doing Ultra Monte Rosa, which is like so cool and so exciting. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like very much I've got one athlete that, that was like, you know what? I think I'm going to cash in on like being pregnant this time around. <laughs> and so it's like everyone's got a slightly different approach to it. And I think that's OK. And like it's one of those things akin to like the pandemic and things changing quickly all over the world, in, at, but at different at different rates and at different times. What was okay in North America wasn't okay in Europe or wasn't okay in Asia or what vice versa. And so I think that we've got a little bit of that too, where it's like, I've got athletes who are going to UTMB, but come July might bail and do something yes. else. Or, or I've got athletes who are, you know, signed up and are like hoping that they go, but have an alternative in mind, et cetera. So we'll be there most every step of the way, but that is the current lay of the land. And then there will be more kind of there'll be more small meetings about specific topics because yesterday's meeting was like absolutely insane 
it covered a little bit of everything and also like a lot of nothing. And so there will be more targeted meetings to hopefully bring clarity to very specific issues. Um, largely, it's like communication and transparency. Um, mm -hmm. And I have one in, in Boulder. Next more week. talking. Yeah. Next yeah. steps is more talking, it turns out. Exactly. Um, but yeah, and I've talked to like John Ray and some other folks who like, yeah, who like love these events, but also like, yeah, have some have some feelings and opinions. And I think those <laughs> need to be shared with the wider organization. So keep doing what you're doing, folks. It's slowly working, I think. Um, okay, we're going to spur things on to results. And this again, this is being recorded ahead of Black Canyons. It will come out after Black Canyon. So there'll be another race recap show where we'll talk about everything that we saw happen out there. Um, hopefully share some some stories from the trails with you all. Um, so today we're going to largely focus our results on the absolutely insane uh, Olympic trials marathon race that happened this past weekend. Um, that was, I woke up just in time to watch like the men kick off and the women kick off at 7am Pacific, 10am out in Florida. And it was, I was in tears by the end of it. <laughs> It was amazing. I caught the last hour. I was like running because I, I can't deal with just the whole the whole thing. <laughs> I need to just watch the second half of it. But um, oh, it was good. Yeah, it was good got, from beginning to end. Yeah, it was so good. I mean, and so there's like a group watch party at Scratch Labs Cafe here in Boulder. So it was awesome. There's a ton of people there. And it was like it was so cool to watch. There was a, like a lot of surprises. Um, yeah. Yeah. Super, super cool. Well, a lot of surprises and a lot of like I yeah. the men's race. <laughs> And that exactly was Not exactly many what we surprises. No, no. no. Well, I'm People, surprised that the Brooks guy, the Zach, was leading the whole way, but that until was really, the last bit. <laughs> that was really, really cool. Keely, you pulled some numbers about starters in the women's field, and I would just like love to go over those before we dive into quick race results from that mm -hmm. that event. Yeah. So just a quick backup. One thing that I missed that I'm kicking myself for is that Portland in Portland, the sports bra had a viewing party. Oh, and that they, was our opportunity. I know. <laughs> and they were partnered with Wazelle and Brawls for Sports, Sports Brawls for Girls. And um, it sold out, though, which is freaking sweet for the sports That's bra. So, so cool. I didn't get to go, but it sold out. It was packed. I heard it was a great time. So I will keep my eyes open. I don't know how I missed it, but I was like, man, this is kind of my job to see these things. And I missed <laughs> that one. So <laughs> fail. Um, but yeah, so I pulled some numbers because we're all stat nerds over here. <laughs> and um, basically back when they announced the Olympic trials or the new Olympic marathon qualifying time of 2.37, we ran a lot of numbers. Um, so for those of you who don't remember, back in 2020, they had increased the um, qualification time to two hours and 45 minutes. Um, the That resulted in 450 women starting the trials in 2020, which was a ginormous increase, right? Um, it was however, so cool. Yeah. And so when they dropped the time from 245 to 237, we were kind of like analyzing it back a couple, about a year ago saying like, okay, well, what will that look like for qualifiers? Because if we crunched the numbers from 2020, we had decided that only 90 women had ran the standard then. And so we were like, okay, well, what does that look like for the start line in 2020, 2024? Um, it ended up being that 174 women qualified. So an additional 84 women, you know, qualified on top of that 90 who had had the standard in 2020. So people did really rise to the occasion, which is awesome. Um, 149 women actually ended up starting the trials and then 117 finished, which is a decent attrition rate. But again, it was in Orlando. It was very hot and humid. 
training for that in February is tough for a lot of people, um, especially with 80, 85% humidity. Yeah. Which is like, I think temps so weren't, the temps were warm, but they weren't crazy. But when you add 85% humidity to the mix and like direct sun, like you would see them trying to hit the shade on the course and it was yeah. not going to work for long. I'm right. just thinking about like slip and slide skin, like in Thailand, it was awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the cool thing about this year though, is although there were less starters and less finishers than 2020, the field was, um, more representative of runners of color than any past year. So again, yeah, 12% of the baby field steps. Yeah. Baby steps, but it's cool that it is drawing maybe a little bit more of a diverse crowd again, so many more steps to go, but, um, just one data point in this, which made, made me interested in that. Um, so pretty cool. Yeah. Hmm. And then I think. We can kind of just like announce the team. The team is really cool. The team for women is um, Fiona O'Keefe um, in her debut marathon, which we'll talk more about in a second. Emily Sisson, who came in with probably the most pressure of anyone. She's the mm -hmm. current, she's the reigning, uh, she's not the reigning uh, Olympic trials champion. She missed the team actually for the marathon in 2020 and made it on the 10K. So she, she, so, she, so she is a former Olympian, but she is the American record holder in the marathon. So I think it was kind of like Emily Sisson's race to lose, which is like mm -hmm. a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. And then um, Dakota Lindworm, uh, Minnesota gal, um, was third and ran a stellar time. And then actually what I thought was really cool was um, Jess McLean or Jess Tun McLean, mm -hmm. yeah. um, who finished fourth. fourth, is unsponsored, ran a four minute PR, mm -hmm. and she hadn't come in with that sub 226 so um, cool. time. Yeah. And so we'll talk more about this in a second. But basically, she had to run that mm -hmm. in order to make the team. Um, and it was really cool. Like now she, like she is a, an alternate, like she's officially, like she's qualified mm -hmm. to be the Olympic alternate. She's like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just going to train my butt <laughs> off and right. ready for August but if they the, need me. The cool thing about her is she lives in Phoenix. So it's like, hmm, maybe that helped her training. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she yeah. ran such a stellar race. Yeah. So. Super cool. But um, we had a listener who wrote in and asked how Fiona O'Keefe qualified for trials since she had not yet run a marathon. And Hilly, I think, responded to her and said, yeah. hey, like, hey, it's actually, actually one other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's actually kind of cool. And Corinne, you can say if, if I don't know if it's. Uh, oh, yeah, it's in here. So basically, you can qualify for the Olympic trials to compete in the Olympic trials with a half marathon time. So that's what Fiona O'Keefe qualified just to participate and show up on the start line. So she ran a 107, 20 something for a half. Yeah, which is, which like is the fastest, so debut fast. half, the fastest women's American debut half as well, I think. Yeah, she had yeah. to run under 112 to qualify. And a lot of people think that the, a lot of people think that the half marathon time is actually harder, like historically, Yeah. Um, particularly from that 245 um, totally. old time was the harder standard to meet but that's like molly seidel who was mm -hmm. a bronze medalist in tokyo she ran her debut marathon at olympic trials as yes, well exactly. four years ago so it's like yeah. there's a precedent for this she was joined by the likes of i think jenny simpson was there off a of half marathon time mm -hmm. natasha rogers was there off of a half yeah. marathon time so it is a way in to trials mm -hmm. for a lot of athletes that's and how jim jim walmsley got in in 2020 yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah exactly good old and jim. but there's like there's the thing too so fiona in order to actually if even if she won the trials mm -hmm. she would have had to then also go sub 226 to make the olympic standard mm -hmm. qualifying time so she yep. did that with a stellar race in a very like yeah 222 10 or yeah 222 the record the record for yeah. olympic u.s olympic trials for women so yeah. she made like double history with like the super fast uh you know debut half then an incredible the, the fastest debut marathon for an american yep. woman too definitely so that's how she got in. So she's, Bonk. she not only won it, but she met, met the standard. So and she's only 25. 
Yep. Yeah. And supposedly <laughs> though, she's been, she's been told since she was like a kid that she'd be a better marathon runner than like a, mm-hmm. than a, um, than like a 10K. track athlete or yeah. a 10k athlete and i think she, she was she saying ran, that too about like the, the last lap of a 10k she's like i just don't have that speed yeah you're like okay um you negative split your debut marathon like gross sure. in sure. that weather i'm just like a lot watching her it was just like oh, oh yeah gosh, it was it was like so it was cold. like 111 110 like she ran so, so cool. fast um and then the other note of that is that historically to make the U.S. women's team, you've got to run about a 225 or faster. So mm-hmm. in theory, unless it was an outrageous year, they, the women who made the team, who made the top three would make the standard, which is mm-hmm. which is great. Um, yeah, right. On, but it's like crazy oh, about the time. Like if you look back at in particular, Des Linden posted something with Brooks about like their place and their time. And she's ran like she ran really fast this year, but her place was like 11th, 11th. Mm-hmm. right? And so like the whole field is just getting so much faster. It was tight. Even like, though so the conditions cool. were so bad. It's crazy. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. super tight through that women's like top 15. Like they were just like bodies were just falling across the line. Oh, um, I know. Yeah, it was more complicated on the on the men's side of things because mm-hmm. we only had opened up two spots due right. to the current Olympic mm-hmm. qualifying standard of needing to be under a 208. Um, and actually we had a third spot until the Houston Marathon when another runner from another country um, bumped Galen Rupp out of the top 60 ranked um, men in the world or something. It's a confusing system that I don't completely understand. So we had lost <laughs> a spot just like a couple of weeks ago, actually. Yeah. Um, we knew that there was a chance of us having, we knew we'd have two spots. We'd maybe have three spots. Uh-huh. We currently have two spots. It's it's possible that we can open up a spot still between now and Paris. I don't completely understand that, but someone will figure it out for us. Someone, yeah. has, it's, someone has it's to run weird. sub 218. That's what has and to And it's happen. just someone. It's not yeah. like the guy who got third has exactly. to wait. Right? Someone it's has to run 208. Sorry, yeah. not 218, 208. Yeah, so yeah. exactly. And then the third, the third guy at the trials can go. No. It's just to like unlock the position. Yeah. So it's like CJ yeah, Albertson. CJ, where are you? Ah. I know you only finished fifth only. It was an amazing run for CJ. Um, yeah. He like fought back to finish fifth. It was very, very cool to see. So cool. We'll just send CJ and someone else because that man recovers faster than anyone we know. <laughs> we just need to go have him snipe a 207.35 somewhere. Um, if anyone can do it, CJ Albertson can do it. We're looking, we're looking to you, bud. Um, but on the men's side, less surprises, I think. All eyes were on the former BYU runners, teammates, yeah. Mormon dads, Connor Manson, Clayton <laughs> Young. Um, like, holy cow, all their pre-race interviews were just, like, so funny. And, like, <laughs> the hype around these two guys was just, like, building in this, like, really all-American kind of way. It was just, like, very, very cute. Did you guys see the high fives that they, like, did on, like, there was one, oh, yeah. I forgot who the he, like, put it. Yeah, <laughs> So cool. Yeah, they were having a great time. And then I also really love that Clayton Young gave a lot of shout outs to Zach um, Panning after mm-hmm. after the race being like he he did this like he like he did this. He's responsible for like putting together a really good race. Like we were bummed to see him fade to sixth. Mm-hmm. And again, mm-hmm. and then Zach posted some photo of him running as like a middle schooler. And he was like, never say never. And he's just this like prototypical, like little middle school guy, just like slogging it out it was really really cool to see but it's just like yeah the men put put together an exceptionally cool race led by an like zach who ultimately finished in sixth um because he needed they're like we need the time we have to go under 208 like we Mm -hmm. gotta someone's got to push this time forward Mm -hmm. and when clayton and connor ultimately passed him when they saw that he was struggling around mile 20 they're like hey like stick with us like get on us stick with us like you Mm -hmm. have to stay with us like we're gonna do this and i've got like chills thinking about it um Mm -hmm. 
and Zach did like he, he stuck for as long as he could before he ultimately fell off the back a little bit. Um, it was cool. It really felt like Clayton kind of just like opened up his arms and let Connor yeah. cross the line. Yeah. Yeah. Him, which is like, they both made the team. I don't think Clayton <laughs> cared about the 15 K that will go to Connor's family. Instead. <laughs> um, cause that was, I think the prized prize. Yeah. Between the two. And but then I, I feel like there's a lot of like little, there's a lot of messages on social media that are like, Oh, I bet they split the difference. Like they were just like figuring it out together. So it's just <laughs> yeah. funny. It's so funny. It's, it's very, I, very um, funny. But that was the deal that they made with the high five. Yeah, exactly. Sealed the deal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what would have they done if they had tied? I don't know. Yeah. And I think I people like, we wanted a sprint. And I'm like, I don't know. Their story is like so very beautiful, I think, yeah. that like a sprint finish between the two of them would almost have felt weird. Yeah. Like they're just training homies. Like they're like, they like take care of each other's kids. Like it's a whole situation. <laughs> I can't imagine one of them like elbowing the other guy out of the right. way. So, yeah. Um, and it's like Clayton has won again against Connor a lot as well. So it's almost like they go back and forth a lot in terms of like Clayton wins this championship and then Connor wins this. And so it's like, you know, yeah, (laughs) it felt very wholesome. And the video is amazing. If you haven't seen the video, it's all over the internet, um, like the final stretch. And it's, it's just really, really cool. And then very cool story. Leonard career ultimately comes from behind a bit to finish third. Mm -hmm. There are two army dudes duking it out. And what was really cool is that Leonard is 40 years old. And he finished fourth three years ago, four years ago. So he, he missed the team by one spot Mm. four years ago. And so they asked him, they're like, Hey, like we might not have a third spot. Like, how are you feeling? He's like, it doesn't matter. I finished third this time around. (laughs) Like I moved up a spot. Like he's like, if I go, I go, if I don't, it's okay. And I was just like, that is such a like unique position to be in being like, yeah, you know, if it works, it works. But it was, um, I hope I hope we unlock a third spot because getting the 40 year old Leonard career to the Olympics <laughs> in the marathon would be pretty mm-hmm. freaking cool. Yeah, totally. And then we have to give some trail shout outs. Um, CJ Albertson ran to fifth. John Aziz, who's been on the U.S. short distance trail team, ran to 38th. Tyler McCandless and Zach Cornelius ran. Mm. They finished basically together in 103 and 104. Christian Allen did not finish, I believe. Um, I don't know if he started. I could not find him on the results list, so I'm assuming he was a DNF. Um, Des Linden finished 11th at 40 years old, I believe. Fifth, fifth Olympic trials. It's insane. It's <laughs> so cool. Someone who we didn't shout out who's not a trail athlete, but could be Sarah. Sarah Hall, join the outside. <laughs> We're waiting for you. Um, ran her whatever, like her 10th Olympic trials, um, yeah. finishing fifth. fifth. Yeah, which I think is her best Olympic trials. Yeah, she's master's record too. She's what a baller. I just love that entire family. I want them to adopt me as well. Um, Peyton Thomas, who is a former guest of ours, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and find it because Peyton is a gem of a human being. Um, ran another two thirty six. Mm-hmm. Um, finishing forty first, and then Catherine Floor finished fiftieth. So those are the folks that have a uh, a trail or ultra inclination who we'd like to come dabble more actually Peyton gave this really cute interview afterwards and she's like I'm really excited that I don't have to run another marathon for three years <laughs> like she's like I'm coming back to the trails and then I will I won't have to run a marathon for three more years and then I'll run it again to try to qualify for the next trial so I thought that that was very very cute Peyton <laughs> we're big old fans <clears throat> um okay the last bit of like this is kind of racing slash news and that was that uh USA track and field announced their 2024 national championship calendar um, which is interesting. Um, I'm just going to run through it. Mm-hmm. The hundred mile road national champs coming up February 16th at the jackpot ultra in Nevada. 
March 10th is the 50K Road Champs at Casamit in New York. Um, Mad City. And these are like kind of classic races that happen over and over again, particularly on the road side of things. Mad City, 100K in Madison, Wisconsin on April 20th will be the 100K Road National Champs. Loon Mountain will host the vertical um, mountain running national championship. Again, um, really, really cool race. I've, I ran it back in 2012, I want to say, and it was awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, and then new for the first time ever, which I think is really freaking cool is that the Cirque series in snowboard, snowbird, Utah got the mountain running national championship. Mm -hmm. So up down format, which like, heck yeah, the Cirque series runs such a cool bunch of events. Like that's Mm -hmm. a big deal for them. Um, Keely highlighted a, uh, maybe fan favorite race, favorite, the Tamalpa <laughs> headlands 50 K in California, um, was the, fr- they held the 50 K champs this past year as well, but August 17th, do you have anything to add to that? You're going to go, you're going to be there. No, I just, I just love that it's in, in the headlands. I want there to be a rebirth of North Face, and to me, this feels a little bit like that. Yeah. So <laughs> Jeff Stern is the race director. And Jeff for this. is the race director who's yeah, my it, homie. It's a race that's existed for a long time, but Jeff kind of brought it back post-pandemic. Like, it had kind of gone away, gone the way of the Dodo Bird. Um, and I think he collaboratively, a little bit with Daybreak, are hosting – the 28k version of it in september which is part of the golden trail world series which is oh, right yeah so Super cool sick like mm-hmm. very very cool <laughs> um and then my hometown hayward wisconsin is hosting the marathon trail championships in september at the berkey trail run festival um they've hosted the half marathon champs before but they haven't hosted the marathon champs um if you want to run a 26 mile cross-country race this is it. It's on <laughs> ski trail predominantly. I think they, I think they intersect a bunch of single track as well, which I spent my high school years building. Um, but it's a cool race, basically a long cross country race. Um, Tussie, which was Keeley's first ultra, the Tussie mountain back <laughs> 50 mile will host the 50 mile road national championships in October, which is mostly like dirt road, isn't it? So it got a yeah, lot of dirt road. It's in not, it. it's not much paved, maybe two miles. Yeah. It's cool. all dirt road. It's and great. then it sounds like it's an amazing, I mean, Devin's run it. I've had athletes run it. Uh-huh. Um, if you like faster stuff and you're inclined to maybe try a 50 mile race or you're more comfortable in the roads, it'd be a good, a good 50 mile yeah. step up. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's a relay. So you literally can see hmm. your crew and other people all the time. So you never really have too many down moments where you're lonely because people drive by and cheer for you like the whole time. That's oh, cool. very sick. I know Devin's gone out to it. It sounds like mm-hmm. a really cool race. Yeah, Moab. I was going to say Moab Trail Half Marathon is going to host the Half Marathon Trail Champs in November. They've hosted it a bunch. Another great race. And then Dirt Circus, which hosted a 10K for the first time this past year Mm -hmm. um, in Arkansas, is going to host the 10K National Champs in November. Dirt Circus is like a in conjunction with Ultra Sign Up. It's a cool, they're they're trying something really cool and novel, and we'll see how it does. And then finally, the 24-hour National Champs is at Fat Ox in Arizona, November twenty. Third, And I believe that that all now can be found on the USA track and field website or the American trail running association website. So I don't know, go try something, particularly our master's athletes. You can win a master's national championships. And I think they start master's age groups at like 35. So like everyone, everyone's getting a championship title this year. Sarah Hall, come over. Come join us. Okay. (laughs) Now we're going to do something really fun. I keep standing further away from my mic when I do this. Um, Today, for our meat and potatoes, we're going to do something called fact or fiction. And if you have read my Iron Far columns, um, I started adding in something periodically called a fact or fiction piece, where we dig into a set of trail myths. And these were things that I heard 
whispered at trailheads or passed around <laughs> at group runs or on questionable podcasts sometimes. And it's not that they are incorrect or wrong all the time, but it's kind of like you hear it and you think like, did I hear that right? Is that accurate? Um, or it just sounds kind of silly. And when you dig into it, it's either true or it's not. And so we each brought a myth to the table today to talk about. Um, and I'll kick things off. And it's my, the myth that I chose was you only need one downhill session to quote season your quads. And, you know, is that, is that true or is it not? And what does that look like? And so we're each going to like, as we go through this, like I'm going to set it up and ask Keely and Hillary a, a couple questions. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we maybe put some of these things into practice. And then we'll just kind of continue on from there. And maybe you hate this format and you can let us know, but we <laughs> wanted to try something a little bit different today. So my, my, again, my myth is you only need one downhill like session to season your quads. And this comes up because I think when I'm working with athletes, we think a lot about, we're worried about the uphills. We're worried about getting enough vert. We're worried about, you know, how do we fit that into our week or our long runs and then every year I will have athletes worry about the downhill. And for example, I have five guys running Western States this year. Don't know how that happened, but I'm really excited about it. And <laughs> it's a net downhill hundred mile race. And so every, every season, every year, when I've got athletes coming into this race, they look at it, they come from flatter environments sometimes, and they are worried about their quads blowing up. They are worried about surviving the downhills and being able to run well late into the race. And so, yeah, how do we season the quads to get them ready? And I'm wondering just a little bit from the two of you, have you like heard this fear from your athletes? Has this been a concern brought up to you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Especially for athletes that don't necessarily have access to the trails or like they don't think it's like enough, right? They're, most of their runs, especially during the week will be um, on the road or they don't, you know, their hills are small compared to a race in the Pacific Northwest or, you know, Colorado. So. Well, it's because I've been coughing. Um, I think that I've dealt with this myself and then I've also had a lot of athletes deal with it. And, and I, I'm, I'm on the board or the bandwagon that this is definitely a myth in my mind, but I'm intrigued to hear what you think, because I've had a race where I've done probably one pretty bad, pretty hard downhill effort. And my quads still blew up during that race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, what does the science say? Right. Um, and I think that like the biggest part of the science is talking about like, how do you do this safely? Like, how do you do this effectively mm -hmm. and how do you do it safely? And I think as coaches, our job is to think about like dose response and like, what is the, what is the smallest possible dose that elicits results? And again, there's variability within individuals. Like physiology does not operate in black and white. There are shades of gray. There are, we see a, a study that says, oh, this worked for, this didn't work for, you know, six of the 10 participants. Well, it worked for four of them. Like we should explore that type of thing. So much of like ultra running training is repetitive in nature, right? But it's overwhelmingly safe. Like you build up your miles, you build up your vert, you build up your time on feet. But when it comes to downhill running and the specific like neuromuscular and musculoskeletal demands of it, if we attack that in like a super aggressive, repetitive manner, like we might end up injured instead of on the start line. And so it's mm -hmm. like, again, when you're working with athletes, it's like, what is the balance there between getting some of that repetition and not having them maimed before their race? And part of why that's so tricky is that the demands of running downhill vary super wide, like vary a ton from running uphill or running on flat surfaces, i.e. running uphill is more concentric muscle 
demands and then while running downhill is more eccentric muscle demands. And I'm wondering, this is like bio, bio 101, biomechanics 101, kinesiology 102, um, <laughs> which I struggled in kinesiology because I couldn't understand how joints moved in space very well. Um, <laughs> what do you guys know about eccentric muscle contractions? I mean, because I mix them up all the time. Yeah, yeah. Me too. I mean, it's it's when a muscle is elongated, which I feel like is kind of counterintuitive. Um, but it's typically elongated when it's activated and actually under tension. Um, so like this is obviously evident when you're running downhill because you can like kind of see the quad of the leg, the lead leg envision downhill is like longer, right? Because you're leading out with it. And so it's extended and so that it's like slowing you down. And so when it's extended, those muscles are elongated because they're under tension to actually slow you from moving down. So uh, gravity, baby. Hmm. Yeah. So that's where you can get all that muscle damage because that's, it's holding that tension for mm -hmm. a very long time. And I've always like, yeah, like uh, for, for tendon work, I've always associated like the eccentric work is to, to strengthen, to strengthen those and like that they respond fairly quickly to it. Um, I was dealing with some, um, Achilles tendonitis and like doing some like eccentric kind of work in the gym is something that helped me there but yeah like kind of forcing it like not going out and running on it but um doing some focus work there but yeah it is it, I always get them confused because it it's like eccentric I would think it's like more like shorter but no it's like the the length when the muscle yeah. is fully along yeah and you'll forever leg. you'll forever mix those up but I like the lead, <laughs> I like thinking about that lead, lead leg, leg visualization because it is you're not in that flexed position you're in an extended leg position but there's still a ton of tension mm. um, being produced across that muscle mm -hmm. um and so there's this thing called the repeated bout effect which is it got a confusing name because in my <laughs> head when I hear repeated bout effect I think we got to do this thing a lot we got to do this thing over and over and over and over again and that's a repeated bout and that's how we get better but actually in the scientific literature, which we know the scientific literature is super good at naming things, like in non-confusing, very straightforward ways, <laughs> that the repeated bout effect, it actually refers to this phenomenon where a single novel bout of exercise, generally eccentric um, in nature, causes, a, causes an adaptation that protects against future muscle damage, i.e. one bout protects you long-term in the next bout. And so... Um, you know, Keely, you just mentioned that you've, you've tried to do this bout, this one bout, and then your quads still fell apart, or we're coming out of spring and you've done that first big long every year at Montana state, we do our first like mountain run of the season with the ski team. And we'd bomb down from the top of Bridger down mm. from the M and you just, I was running with all these Alaskans. If you know, Alaskans, they're like insanely good at running downhill. And I would not be able to walk for like four days afterwards. <laughs> and my quads felt better the next time around type of thing. And I'm wondering if you guys have... Mm -hmm have any other experiences with that kind of like one bout effect positive, maybe positive or negative. It sounds like Keely's got, got some mixed, mixed feelings about the repeated bout. <laughs> I've, I've had more of a similar experience to Corinne. Like I remember the first like mountain run, like coming back from, from injury, I was like, uh, ouch. Like it, it wasn't even that long of a downhill. <laughs> yeah, coming like... down Tam after re recovering from a pelvic stress fracture. I was like, I was like getting to the, getting down to a toilet position was not, not my friend for a couple of days. But yeah. for me, it always seems like it's the obvious, well, in this, you guys can, can weigh in, but it's the steeper, the downhill, the, the, the more of the effect I have on this. And, um, it's like, even if I'm running fast, like on a down, like a more gradual, like downhill road, it seems like the effect is a lot more pronounced if it's a steeper trail. Yeah. There's some, there's some like 
uh, we'll talk about this research in a second, but there's some like limitations to the research, which might be important for listeners. There's this group out of University of Calgary in Alberta and their Guillaume is like, I don't know, science icon here. He's a very, very smart man. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been, they've put out a number of papers kind of all based around one study, um, looking at repeated bout effects, um, but essentially they had, and it was like, you know, once again, physiology research is funny. There, there's 11 men involved in the study. So only male athletes, fairly small sample size, et cetera. They brought them into the lab and they had them do a 30 minute controlled downhill run. So they're at negative 20% grade, which is fairly steep. I will say negative 20% is, is a steep, is a steep grade running about nine thirty minute mile pace on it. Um, the volunteers were measured uh, again, um, so, so they came in, they did that study post that one study at 24, 48, 72, 96, and 168 hours. They measured neuromuscular fatigue, flat ground running, biomechanics, and running economy. Three weeks later, they came in and did the same thing. They did another 30 minute study. And then again, 24, 48, 72, 96, and 168 hours post downhill session, they measured those things. And what they found was that muscle soreness, neural fatigue, and maximal voluntary force production were improved after the second downhill run, i.e. there was some sort of protective adaptation that happened after run one, so that when they did run two, those measures at 24, 48, 72, 96, and 168 hours, quote unquote, improved. Mm-hmm. Kind of like their limitations of one, sample size of 11, all male athletes, a 30-minute control lab experiments are always going to be, they have to be controlled, right? So that you have to get, you have to set some sort of parameter, like long enough to hopefully make them sore, but not so long. There's other things at play, et cetera. Um, so basically it was like, there seems to be a re- repeated bout effect here that works. We don't know how long it works for. Again, this is only, only there was, this was only three weeks between the two trials. Um, so we, we could say it probably works for three weeks, this type of stimulus, but again, it's going to be individual. And so I think there's mm-hmm. something to be said for like, how I would take this, like what I would take away from this as a, as like an athlete or as a coach is that like, you probably don't need to go do a million downhill sessions to get ready for your race that has downhill, particularly non-technical downhill running. You got a big technical race, you do, you're, you're in sky running, you need technical exposure. If you're doing Western States, you probably don't need to be doing a once a week or twice a week downhill stimulus, but some targeted runs where you do push downhill a little bit more is probably all you need. Is it going to be one bout? I'd say probably not, but you also have to not do so many bouts that you hurt yourself. So we're walking a fine line of getting some eccentric muscle load, which you could probably add stuff like gym work in to try to balance that out mm-hmm. and an occasional effort that includes some downhill muscle damage. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, takeaways? Keely's like, we're going to go back to the lab and we're going to add this variable and that variable. <laughs> and we're going to bring 60 people in and be 30 men and 30 women. And we're going to make sure the women are all in this part of their cycle. Like kind of what, where's your head at right now? I mean, I think that, yeah, to your point, this is one study on, on some men with a three week um, break in between. I, th- I think that for sure the three weeks is interesting to me because when I had my quads blow up, my, my downhill run was definitely longer than that from the race. So like, trying to make sure you have that stimulus, not sure when it should be, but yeah, I think we just need more studies. I think a field study would be really, really cool too, because I think dog a lot of the times, yeah. And a lot of the times we're running these downhills in a really long effort. And again, to my previous point, like, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Like, what is all of that other stress that's going on? How does that impact muscle soreness and all of that? It'd be very interesting, but yeah, this is not super surprising to me. Yay. Kelly, what about you? 
You're muted. We're really good at this today. Thanks. I was just saying that the the repeated bout like that, that is the part that's, that's really interesting to me too, is like, okay, figuring out where that is. And of course, there's probably be a lot of variables um, from person to person, but also from male to female, and then the length of the running that you're doing. So yeah, but I mean, it. I, not I think- everyone has a 30 minute negative 20% downhill in their backyard. <laughs> That, that's very specific. That's a little bit hard to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was my myth. And I think it's, I think it's largely fact with a little bit of, it depends. I like it. <laughs> that's my, con- that's my conclusion. Okay. Which might be the answer to all of these. <laughs> it depends is our favorite type of answer. Okay. Yeah. Hillary, I really liked yours and I'm really excited to, to talk through it with you. So what, Woo-hoo. what myth, what myth did you bring to the table today? Of course, I chose one with about mental toughness. So my myth is to be truly mentally tough, I must push through pain and discomfort all of the time. That's what being tough is. Let's go. David Goggins, who's going to carry the boat? <laughs> yeah, Stay to, hard. No, exactly. So not to push, not to like, whatever. If you, if you love David Goggins, cool, it's fine. Um, but like, I think that's where, that's where this came from. It's kind of I don't know, maybe it's, it's like an outdated view of like mental toughness and what toughness is in general, this idea that you have to like train it out of you, this whole like boot camp, like military thing, like let's go do repeats in the rain or like, you know, not wear a shirt when it's freaking cold outside and, you know, just make things tougher than they need to be to basically like train this toughness into you or out of you or, you know, like that, that whole mentality. Um yeah, so I'm curious what you guys think about this. If that's something that your athletes bring to you, if it's something that you know you're prescribing to your athletes of like doing a long run, and I don't know, it might be some cruel form of torture if you're like forcing your long your your athletes to you know wear, wear sweats when they're training for ultra distances. But this is maybe Western prep. But <laughs> I mean, there there are coaches who like very like into like intentionally kind of preach some of this stuff, like you know, I want you to blister your feet, like I want you to run in wet shoes, and I'm just like, oh, okay, like. <laughs> Honestly, like most of my athletes are parents and work busy jobs. And I think like getting out of your car at the trailhead shows mental toughness. Mm-hmm. I think like getting your run in after you put the kids down for night, like for the night <laughs> on your treadmill shows mental toughness. And so my, my kind of boat, like, or my, my boat, my boat that I'm carrying with David Goggins here <laughs> is a lot less about like we life presents us with moments of discomfort and life presents us with moments of like, quote unquote, mental toughness. And it's like, just getting by sometimes I think is like <laughs> and reminding athletes of that when I'm like, Oh no, you like got this thing in after the dog ran away and like your kid is sick, et cetera. Like in my mind, that, that is natural growth and we don't need to force it. I guess is mm-hmm. my, my take Keely. What about you? No, I agree. I think like I talk about this a lot and we talk a lot about this a lot on the podcast is like, there's not a one size fits all for mental toughness. And I don't think that there's a like, a threshold at which like you're really tough or you're not really tough. I think it comes in all forms and we can practice it all the time, but again, within reason, like we don't need to go crazy all of the time <laughs> and be detrimental to our health, you know, cause there's a level of mental toughness that's required and there's a level that's just unnecessary in my mind. Okay. Yeah. And th- this is like something that, I mean, obviously I'm passionate about in this whole, we've talked about on the podcast before too, like many times is this like death or DNF kind of mentality. And I think that kind of fits into it. And so what I was um, curious and I saw like kind of just one study kind of going over this, because there's been more studies about this hot topic of mental toughness and how exactly to measure this kind of like this, like 
this box that we don't know what's inside of it. Um, and so there was a specific, um, we'll link it to the show notes, all like these articles, but um, there's a specific study. <clears throat> the Canadians, in, man. At Canada. I know these guys, let's go. Um, but Bernard Thom, um, Frédéric Guay, and Christine uh, Trottier, let's see if I say this right, right from Quebec region, <laughs> um, but they're from the University of Laval in Canada, and they presented this updated model to explain what toughness is and actually how to improve it. And so this study kind of goes through, they, um, they, they create this kind of test where they're testing mental toughness from cyclists. Um, and they discover that mental toughness is a finite resource. Um, and they kind of break it down. It consists of basically, they say, three resources. So challenging goals, so something that's hard to achieve. So basically in their test, they have a little like an FTP test. And in one group of cyclists, they um, the screen, which like cyclists like go off of power numbers, it goes black. And then they have to compete this like this FTP test, like hitting a certain power without like the data input, right? So some they found that some athletes panic, some don't. The control study was just like kind of a regular test like that. So it's a challenging task to begin with. Um, and then um, they they discovered that um, these three resources for your finite, your basically met that consistent mental toughness, a challenging goal, self-efficacy, which is basically they describe as self-belief. Um like or a fancy it's like a fancy type of self-belief that you can learn um through various means and then self-control so it's basically to resist unhelpful impulses like uh this can be like internally or externally um and all and so these obviously can influence your they've like trying to determine things that are measurable that can influence your performance and they found um that athletes that exhibited more Kind of resilience or th these things they measured in mental toughness had more of these um these like resources uh and so yeah so the, but the key point in this study was that they actually showed that there's things that you can work on to improve to improve your mental toughness so it's like if you're saying that um it's it's I think it's different than this other model of like, OK, this David Goggins say you either have it or you don't. You have athletes that like survive the boot camp or they don't. Right. Um, but this is more like, OK, well, if you're in a more welcoming environment, it's like and this is a tough situation, then you learn things in this tough situation so that the next time you're presented with the challenge, you can actually Im improve upon your performance and do better. I think the the main thing that I talk about my athletes uh, with this is like that self, that self-belief, like how do you actually, what are these ways that you can actually uh, like talk to yourself and like imp improve these ways to actually, to, to get a better performance out of you instead of like immediately, like when your screen goes black on your test to tell yourself, oh, like I'm not going to do this. Like you're the athletes that perform better on like basically achieving their, their FTP score, like, uh, and passing that test, so to speak, were able to have more self-efficacy and kind of problem solve their way through it. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, it's not a perfect study. It's definitely, there's definitely a lot of variables because it's all, it all deals with, um, you know, pers personal, like if someone already had like coming into this as an athlete, like they're already maybe better at like doing self-belief talk and things like this. So it's not absolutely like perfect, but I think it actually raises an interesting point that you, this is something that's more taught and a process driven thing than you either have it or you don't. 
Yeah. And self-efficacy is super interesting. There's like a ton of studies that have come out just around that kind of terminology that are basically like this like super fancy type of self-belief that you like, it is learned, right? And it's not just learned by doing things, it's actually even like learned by watching a peer or a mentor do things like can boost your own self-efficacy. So it's like your belief in the ability to accomplish a task, essentially, right. like it's this very specific thing, but it's, it's really cool. I think it's a really interesting model for maybe what's moving away from mental toughness and is moving towards what I've like deemed. There's a post-it note on my computer that says this, where it says that psychological flexibility is greater than mental toughness. And like, I, in I my mind that. that this study, the book that you link from Steve Magnus, do hard yeah. things, et cetera, like really mm -hmm. speak to this idea of like psychological flexibility being kind of like the end goal of on, of taking on challenges, of being put in stressful situations, of getting going into your race and being able to handle the hiccups, et cetera, like comes right. down to this like flexibility component. As opposed to this whole idea of like, I think the whole, you know, David Goggins, the whole David Goggins kind of approach or that boot camp training is like stacking the odds against you. So it almost feels like the point of it is for you to fail instead of learn different strategies to, to be able to cope. But I think, um, they, in this paper, they talked about, uh, th certain things that can influence your performance, like, but four things that you can work on. And that's like your attention, effort, perseverance, and like these, these certain strategies. And they kind of, it's, it's interesting to kind of go more into it. There's a lot of, you know, vagueness, I think in, in those, in those, uh, mechanisms, but still, I think, um, if you're interested in the topic, it's cool to kind of go a little bit deeper into the, into the paper. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I guess like to the, on the flip side, like we're in a sport where it's going to be super painful and oftentimes we're going to have a lot of discomfort. And so like, how do you balance that with your athletes? Yeah, this is a great, this is a great question. Um, <clears throat> Well, I mean, I think it's like what Corinne said, like starting this out, it's like even like getting out of the car, like doing these things, like problem solving throughout the day. Like if your day goes to to crap and then you're having to problem solve, like where you're going to fit training in, or you didn't have a good night of sleep, it's like adjusting, like all of these things can be deemed as mental toughness. It's like, I think communicating to your athletes, like those are the little, I say problem solving strategies that you can use in a, in a race, like relating it back to moments in time where things are hard that when things get hard during a race that you can kind of tap in on, on those strategies that you use to kind of, to push forward. Yeah. So I guess the question is, is it fact fiction or something in between? Something in between. <laughs> yeah. I think the old, I think the old, like try to make you fail is probably on the way out and there's mm -hmm. some more new age new age skills on the horizon for most athletes in the sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sweet. Keely, your <laughs> myth was exactly what I thought it was going to be. You want to introduce right, your topic? It, we're going to make it a speedy one. Oh, it's yeah. You've got this. Um, so mine is pretty pre predictable per Corinne's comment. Um, mine is that not <laughs> getting your period means you are training hard enough which anybody who knows me probably nodding along right now being like, yeah, that makes total sense. I understand why Corinne predicted that one. <laughs> um, but I just don't think we can emphasize this enough. And it still shocks me to this day, how many athletes I interact with on a daily basis who still think this is true. Um, regardless of how we think the field's progressing, there's still this narrative lingering around and still rearing its ugly head in how some people fuel and treat their body. So 
want to nip it in the butt one more time. <laughs> At least one more time, probably um, yeah. more than one more time. More than one time. Yeah. So not getting your period means you are training hard enough. Were you ladies ever fed this narrative or experienced this narrative um, firsthand? I wasn't fed this narrative specifically. I was fed the, oh, you don't have your period. It's because you're, it's because you're an endurance athlete. Like, mm-hmm. so it wasn't the like, oh, you're, you're doing good. You're doing get good kid pat on the back. It was more like, it was normalized just because you were an athlete, an athletic girl or an athletic teen or an athletic woman that, mm-hmm. or an athletic person who gets their period that you were like, it was normal to not have one. So I didn't get the like gold star, no period mm-hmm. for you, but I got the, oh yeah, no, that's it's just normal. normal. Like yeah. get on some birth control, which I know we'll talk about here in a second. <laughs> totally. Same, same for me. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of where it came from, right? It's come from years and years of just like abusing our bodies and being told that that's just like what happens to athletes and that that's normal and that's okay. Um, whereas we've found out recently, maybe that's not okay. And so, you know, figuring out that this message we've been fed for a while may not be what we should follow going forward is kind of where we're going now. Um, but I'll dive into the science just a little bit. Again, you guys are probably all relatively familiar with this, but for those of you who don't, We're going to go into it anyways. Um, So why do we lose our menstrual cycle when we're training in the first place? Um, So this can be lost due to high training stress, which could be a combination of the following. It could be higher intensity all of a sudden, higher duration all of a sudden, more frequent training bouts or all of the above paired with other stressors and paired with inadequate calories. And so typically it's a perfect trifecta of those three. You've kind of increased all of those things and decreased the amount of energy you're intaking. Um, and this can lead to functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, which basically just means lack of menstrual cycle due to the brain signaling the hypothalamus, which is a nice little organ in that brain that triggers a lot of cascade effects of the hormones and that actually stops sending those hormones. So it decreases the secretion of those, which ultimately tells your body, Hey, there's not enough female sex hormones regulating circulating right now. Let's not have a baby. Um, (laughs) And so typically that results in lack of menstrual cycle for athletes. And that is what has been kind of spoken about over the years as what is quote unquote normal for athletes to experience when they're training a lot. And so do you guys have athletes who are experiencing this? And if so, how do you address this with them? Yeah. I think what's interesting too, is that this is expressed to me as like, oh, well, she's got low body fat percentage. Therefore they've got low body fat fat percentage therefore is like they they're not going to get their period and like that also turns out to be kind of false too like you can be quote unquote very lean and still menstruate if you're adequately fueled mm-hmm. um and so whenever i take on a new athlete who menstruates and like i've got a lot of of athletes too that are like perimenopausal and menopause like mm-hmm. postmenopausal and that's like a whole another mm-hmm. thing that we've talked about mm-hmm. here periodically is like that's there's a lot of irregularity there but i always ask athletes too like hey like i like you know, what's the, what their status is essentially like, I feel like you're at the doctor's office and I'm like, do you know the date of your last period? And you're like, Oh goodness, it wasn't last week, but it was probably the week before that. So just like talking to athletes and normalizing it. And I've predominantly had male coaches even personally, and all of those coaches have done a really good job of just checking in with that and making sure that I'm personally in a good, a good place. And I think that that's what it is. It's just like normalizing, having a conversation about your period and then adjusting as needed based on what, each athlete's individual symptoms might be around their period, or if they don't have one, like explore why they might not have one. Like, do they, are are they, do they have polycystic ovarian syndrome? Do they like, is there a reason why they don't bleed, et cetera? And like, just make sure that we're crossing our T's and dotting our I's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I mean, oh, go ahead. 
No, I was just saying, it's just, it's a conversation I constantly have, like, you know, it's a way to check in with, with the athletes, um, the, the, yeah, the, yeah, just athletes that I, that I coach and I've had a very good role model and predominantly male coaches who've, who've helped me track my cycle. And then it's just to, I think it's just to have these conversations and to normalize it a bit more. Yeah. And I mean, there could be other reasons why you don't have a menstrual cycle. I think that's always important to emphasize. Some people just don't menstruate. Some people have other issues going on. Mm -hmm. That is all okay. Um, some people are on birth control and therefore they may have a menstrual cycle and they may not. And so I think that's one thing also to highlight is that even if you're on birth control, that doesn't necessarily mean you're okay. I think that's another myth is like, I'm on birth control, so I don't have to worry about my period. I'm just always fine. It's like, no, that could also be a red flag is if all of a sudden you don't have your cycle and you used to get a small control bleed on the, on the birth control. Those are all things to be worried about. And up until recently, because this was just common between athletes, practitioners used to put them on birth control, right? To control amenorrhea be like, Oh, you don't have your cycle. We'll just give you one. We'll give mm. you this birth control and then we'll make you bleed. And people that still do this. They still do it. Um, and they thought it was very protective and also regenerative in terms of bone health. And recently we've found that actually it can be used sort of as a bandaid, whereas it will maybe preserve some bone density in some athletes, but ultimately it does not help you build back bone density or improve your bone density while on it. And so Again, birth control, eh, not necessarily a solve for this. Um, and why it's bad is just because, you know, when we're not menstruating normally, um, our body no longer is, is basically telling us that we don't have the energy it needs to create a child. And that is our first and foremost, like kind of role as a, as a female menstruating person is to have a child. And so while this might seem super unnecessary to athletes, and again, if you don't want a child, totally fine. But while we're an athlete, we might be like, it's fine if I don't, if I can't have a baby right now. Um, there's long-term health impacts that I think we're finding out now where we really do need to prioritize having a natural cycle if that if we're not on birth control. Um, and this will help our performance. So a lot of papers are coming out now showing that amenorrheic women don't have improved performance compared to those who do have cycles. And that downstream, having amenorrhea for a sustained time can decrease bone density with up to a 2% loss every single year for every year losing your cycle. It can also impact fertility downstream and also has its kind of like little web into all sorts of aspects of our health. Like it can impact cardiovascular health, metabolic health, our immune system. It can impact our performance. It can increase our likelihood of developing depression and it impacts our GI distress. Like there's so many downstream impacts of having amenorrhea for a prolonged amount of time. Do you want to hear the scariest one? Out now. Yeah. The scariest one is that estrogen is protective of your brain, y'all. And your brain is an expensive thing that you've like invested time <laughs> and money and schooling into. And there are studies that show that estrogen is really protective of your brain and that they are concerned that women who spent a lot of the, a lot of the time amenorrheic are at higher risk of developing um, uh, like memory issues as they age, like potentially even like earlier onset dementia, et cetera, because mm -hmm. estrogen is protective, which is a little bit scary. Maybe that's like my, my little fear monger here, but yeah, it's not even like your body's trying to keep you keep, like keep your ability to have a baby. It's like your body's job is to keep you alive. 
And it's like, we're going to shut down systems that we quote unquote don't need right now to try to like, it's like when you get cold, right? And like your body's like, you know what, fingers, we don't need those. We're going to constrict <laughs> blood towards our core. And it's because it's your body's job is to keep you alive. It doesn't care if you lose a few fingers along the way. <laughs> its job is to keep you alive, to protect those vital organs. And the same thing happens here from a like <laughs> menstruation, amenorrhea standpoint is like, it's like, okay, we can't have a baby right now. Cool. We're going to shut down that system so that we can keep you alive. And it's like, it's not that like, oh, you can't have a baby. It's like, oh, your body is struggling to keep you alive. And that should like matter mm -hmm. to people beyond thinking it's going to improve your athletic performance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, Corinne rant. I think we can all disagree that training hard enough to lose your cycle, mostly fiction, it's not normal. Um, mm -hmm. so while it's, it's not hundred percent fiction because everything is a gray zone absence of a menstrual cycle for greater than three months is definitely a red flag for athletes. Um, however, one missed period, while that's not, I don't think should be considered completely normal does not necessarily mean we're in the red zone. Um, but I think being in tune with all of that is just super, super important. And so I think, you know, consulting your physician, if your cycle becomes irregular or absent to find out the root cause, whether it be, you know, red ass and overtraining or something completely different, is just something that we should all do. Um, and then, you know, working with someone, if it is something related to overtraining to decrease the number of exercise days you're doing per week and increase the calories you're ingesting to try to reestablish that energy balance is just something that we all should strive to do. If we are finding ourselves in that amenorrheic state, um, due to red S or something like that. Yeah. I consider it like a metabolic injury. Like you're not, you might not be maimed yet. Maybe you're not in a boot yet. Maybe you're not on crutches yet. Right. We don't need to be that. Mm -hmm. You've got a yeah. metabolic injury. You've been given the canary in the coal mine sign to like, <laughs> it's like, it's like the big flashing, like, er, er, er. like the big lights are flashing and you're like, just ignoring them. You're like, red flag. I'm good. Next red no. flag. I'm fine. Just batting them away. So well, <laughs> you're saying mostly fiction, mostly fiction. We should all mm -hmm. strive to, if we can have a naturally occurring menstrual cycle to have mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's and there, there are many like medical reasons why someone might not have a cycle. There are many totally. medical reasons why um, actually like oral birth control is like very beneficial to certain to certain conditions like endometriosis, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's like there are going to be reasons to be on on meds there are gonna be reasons to not be on meds, et cetera. But like being really a critical thinker about it, I think, is mm -hmm. no short term gains. Long, we're all about long term health around here. Mm hmm. You take your short-term gains and you take them somewhere else. <laughs> you take them to some biohacking podcast. You're not going to get mm -hmm. that around here. Nope. Um, okay. Well, that was Factor Fiction. Hopefully you guys liked it. We did it. We made it through. Um, Wide ranging. So it's kind of like a grab bag. It's like a science grab bag um, of us just pooping <laughs> on other people's science. Um, okay. We're going to end things with some society slamming. And again, we asked you all to show us your wrappers, right? We said, hey. You buying things from the feed? We're buying things from the feed. If you're not buying things from the feed, that's okay too. But are you eating on your long run? And we asked you to show us your nutrition from your long run. And people did. Like you guys ended up resharing quite a bit of stuff, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really cool. So keep on keep on tagging us. We like to see mm -hmm. it. Yeah, and like they all were tagging the feed and showing that they ate all sorts of gels. There's precision gels, spring gels, science and sport gels. All of those things were bought off the feed. And they were fueling all of our listeners through their runs. It's so sweet. Yay. Yeah. Full circle community fueling. 
don't lose your periods. Um, we should get hats that say that. Okay. Um, some other society slam stuff. I'll read the first thing. Cause I think it's yes. And that's actually the meeting that I'm jumping into after this, um, is with Miss es- <laughs> Esther Chillog. Um, someone said we should do an episode with her. And I said, I 125% agree with that statement. She is so cool and very, very amazing. Mm, so awesome. That'll be a good one. Um, and I'll read this one. I don't think we're going to answer it, but it's like, this can maybe be like something we cover on a future episode or maybe a future myth to bust on an episode. Um, but we had a listener say, I'm hoping to, to become pregnant this year, but the doctors know very little about ultra running and believe that the stress of it impacts fertility, even though I have mostly regular cycles and I'm a mid pack, um, mid backpack runner, uh, so yeah, I think this could be cool to to cover in a little bit more depth in another episode. So we haven't forgotten you. Keep messaging yeah. us these questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think doctors aren't super privy to information on ultra running because there's not much data out there. But I think you know, keeping your cycle in check, just like we just ranted for for 15 minutes, making sure it is regular, and that even if you are a back of the pack runner, make sure you're fueling and taking care of yourself. Like all those things will definitely increase your increases your ability to become fertile so yeah yeah and i think the other thing too is that like once you are once you are pregnant because this person is on their journey to hoping to mm-hmm. to becoming pregnant is that yeah like most of the research while few and far between on pregnant women because it turns out it's hard to get irb or ethics approval to study pregnant women it's like hmm, there's two lives here um is that there isn't a lot of research, but generally speaking, it, it keeps advancing. Like the ACSM keeps coming out with new and better guidelines, mm-hmm. most of which is that like pregnant women can do everything they were doing pre-pregnancy, essentially, as long as you feel good and things that don't hurt. But yeah, exercise all the way through. You can run, et cetera, until it feels uncomfortable. So we'll talk more about that at a later episode. And then this one, this one is so similar. The last one is so similar to another one that we read recently, but mm-hmm. I almost thought it was the same one, but it's not. Yeah, and I think so that close. is, that's really mm-hmm. cool. Keely, you mm-hmm. want to read through that one real quick? Um, sure. Yeah. Hello. Oh, hello. We say hello back. I wanted <laughs> to say that I really appreciated the brief discussion about Red S and the lactating athlete. I've been breastfeeding for one and a half years. I've been on sabbatical from training for about two years due to pregnancy, postpartum, and the demands of parenting. Approximately a year postpartum when I would occasionally go on a shorter run, five miles or less, I would be absolutely ravenous for a day or two. Girl, I feel you. I'm not even, I'm not even postpartum. <laughs> it probably does not help that I eat mostly plant-based diet, but regardless, it did not feel sustainable. Now that my baby is a toddler, I'm not breastfeeding nearly as often. Even so, adding high-intensity activity to my routine again feels very different than it did pre-pregnancy. I feel like this is really important to emphasize. Again, super individualized. It might not be the same for everyone post-pregnancy. Um They continue to say, I'm doing low volume training for a 13.5 miler run. It's a lot of adjusting and a lot of uncertainty, but this podcast was a good reminder for me to make time to continue eating two to three breakfasts per day. (laughs) So proud. And to be kind to my body as my sleep is often fragmented and not sufficient. Thank you for your podcast. Well, we thank you for your message. Yeah. I love that they kind of like answered, answered any questions they might have had along the way too, yeah. in their own, in their own thing. But yeah, I know it's true. Like we, we hear you and we see you and we're going to hopefully continue to bring you cool and interesting information from, from people, um, in the field, from researchers, from other mother runners, from athletes, from other coaches, subspecialties, et cetera. So keep sending us your questions because they do spur our guest list, um, which is really cool. And for now, I think that's it. We'll see you post black. Black Canyon. Well, this will come out post Black Canyon anyway, but then we'll have another episode. There'll be more Black Canyon hype 
Um, so we love you all. And until next time, we'll see you on the trail. Bye.